0: You guys can have a seat uh, every now and then we like to have someone share their story and uh, Today we get to hear Megan. So if you guys can give her a round of applause
1: Hello Hi, thank you, okay, okay Okay, um, I have my notes and a timer and I'm just going to read from my paper so I don't deviate, because then I'll just talk for a while, and no one wants that. Well, I mean, I would rather hear John and like what he has to say today than to hear my story. Well, no, I wasn't supposed to be sad. <laughs> okay. Okay, hi, guys. I'm Megan. Hey, Megan. Hi. Okay. My story really isn't my own. It never was, though for many years I thought it was about me. For the first two decades of my life, I sought after what I thought would bring me to life, all the while dwelling on that which brought me down. My family life was decent. Trips to Disney on weekends, lunch with grandma most Sundays, nice house at the center of a cul-de-sac. But something wasn't right. As days melted into years, I slowly couldn't breathe, but no one around me could tell I was suffocating. Suppressed traumatic experiences became severe depression and anxiety, and the only thing that made me feel better was TV and dating. If I didn't have a crush or a boyfriend, my life felt meaningless. Even when I had a boyfriend, my life still felt meaningless, so obviously to me, that meant I needed a new boyfriend. As I grew older, I learned to lie better, I failed out of community college, and every relationship around me was broken. I turned to drugs and alcohol and, of course, dating. But I had no control over these things. One day, a then-boyfriend asked why I believed demons could exist, but not in God. That stumped me. Within a couple of weeks, after yet again reaching the end of my rope, I finally let go and told God, "Okay, I believe in you, that I needed an act of God to get me out of the hole I had dug myself into. Shortly after, a church reached out to me, and I began to really learn about Jesus for the first time in my 21 years. But when someone else asked me why I believed, and not because a church told me to, I fled. I turned to myself to seek answers. I decided I needed to know for myself, but I also thought I could define spirituality on my own terms. I read books that validated that notion, and that was from the movement known as New Spirituality, which is a runoff of the New Age. Yet for the next couple of years, I kept encountering Jesus in one way or another. Over time, I had realized he was real and that he had already changed me in small ways. He had begun to change my heart to focus less on myself. Like, I didn't want to lie anymore, and I'd help out. I can't read that word, it's okay. I would help out when I'd go home and like do chores, which like I'd never do chores. So for two decades, I really didn't have empathy until I began to know God, the real God not the version I wanted to be real to suit my own sense and inclination of how I thought God should be and how the universe should operate. I began to see how things I was believing in could actually be deceitful and demonic. When, once again, I reached the end of a rope, coming under demonic attack, hurting people I really cared for, unable to face the consequences of my own ignorant actions, I reached for the only name I trusted, Jesus. I found H2O for the spiritually curious, which I was, I spent time with Bible-believing Christians. I didn't trust that book, but when I started to prayerfully read it on my own, asking God to help me accept his truth, whatever that actually meant, when I started seeing real Christians and feeling God's presence in their words and prayers, realizing they lived their lives trusting in the Bible, Jesus had me. One night at the beginning of this year, I was researching Christianity like usual and came across the salvation prayer but I couldn't say it, why not? And suddenly it dawned on me that I didn't yet believe in those words. And that was when he revealed himself to me, how he loves me, how he sacrificed everything for me, for all of us, but for me too. How he went to the cross for my sins, I lost it and accepted Jesus as Lord and savior, asking him into my life and everything has changed. I know freedom and relief and love and joy and protection and so much more. I know the one who rescued me from the dark and brings me light. I know Jesus, or at least I'm getting to know him. This is my testimony of him and how real and good he is. No one else is like him and no one can do what he's done, still does, and will do. My story isn't my own, neither is my life. You look at me and see me as Megan but God sees me as daughter. My story isn't my own. It's a living illustration on what God can do, how alive he is, and how he is on the move. He is bringing the dead to life, bringing hope and love, and changing everything. I'm so grateful. Okay, thank you.
0: Golly. He is on the move. Word perfect. Um, so uh, we have a few more things to celebrate. We launched our men's ministry called Courageous yesterday. And uh, we had, we, we, we thought we might have 10, 15 people. We had 34. And so it was really awesome. That's an image of uh, Steve sharing. And then Haywood taught us what's called Tamishigiri where we played with swords. See, my wife was at work, so there was no control over what went on at this meeting. And uh, that was awesome. We have an image of Mike showing off his stuff there. That was really, really very cool. And then we awarded a sword of courage to one man that we thought had really manifested stepping out in a courageous heart. So round of applause for Ryan Weicker. Yeah. December 1st is our next Courageous, so you can mark your calendar for that. If you're married, please know that uh, Radiant is that evening, and so you'll need to talk with your wife and coordinate that. Another thing we want to celebrate is the people that are becoming interns in H2O. So H2O is—I know, it's a great image. We're not a rich church that is able to fund many different people, and so we have a group of three people uh, that are going through intern training. And so we as a church want to provide the cost of that training. So that's about $1,500 total for the three of them. Last week, we took an offering for that. We've already uh, already got half of that raised. So that's very, very cool. If you do desire to give to that, we're asking you to give above and beyond what you would normally give because we still need to keep the lights on. So if you want to give to that, uh, please write a check and just write intern training in the memo. That would be great. I got to be honest. I'm I'm a worn out pup right now. I'm a tired guy. Uh, we have so many beautiful things going on, and sometimes I get overextended. I realized this somewhere midweek, and I needed to teach at the college group. I consider myself normally a clear communicator, and the number of questions that the college students had after I spoke, made me think, wait a minute, I need to take some downtime here. And then came Courageous on Saturday morning and then church here this morning. And we're supposed to have God on tap tonight. So I'm sorry, but we are not gonna do God on tap here this evening because I am learning, just learning how to walk by boundaries and limits. So um, yeah, it's a good thing. Thank you. Thank you for clapping and saying that. So um, uh, here we are in the last talk on knowing God. And um, this is going to be kind of a summary. At the end of the talk, I'm going to ask everyone to pull out their blue card. Please comply with me. It helps us a lot as a leadership team to know what in this series has affected you. That's the question I will ask you at the end of this service. And to be honest... Feeling somewhat exhausted makes this talk kind of difficult because I I, I want to bring a lot of power and energy to to this talk, and it's difficult to do. The reason I want to do that is speaking on behalf of our leadership team. So myself, Jim, Steve, and Allison, each of us had this point where we saw God as being awesome and worthy of our lives. And something shifted and we got on mission for Jesus, and that is our hope for all of us here today. Something opened our eyes, invited us to surrender, and called us to live a certain way that most in our culture are not. So I want to kind of do a summary kind of do a review of what we've talked about because we want these truths to go deep into our souls. The first image was that of the burning bush. We talked about the holiness of God. Our culture does not believe that God is holy, but God has revealed himself. He is the God of a billion trillion suns, And so when we say he is holy, that word means other. He's not like us. He is so far removed from us. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. As human beings, we shouldn't get to know this God because we're stained and we're sinful. We shouldn't get this. But there at the burning bush, God revealed himself in his holiness. And the first thing he said to Moses was, take off your sandals, because the ground that you're walking on is holy ground. And I hope we all can sense this. Moses, in some ways, was a screw-up. And what I mean by that is God called him, and he said, not me. Why me? Send somebody else. God called him into a covenant, and he didn't immediately obey the covenant that he was called into. Failure is written all over Moses' life until slowly he begins to get it. And in this first moment, when Moses gets called, God says, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. And the image here is that anything that God touches becomes holy. Even dirt. And so when people come into a covenant relationship with God, they become holy. They become holy ones. So men and women, if you've come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have been made holy. Forevermore, you are what the New Testament calls a saint, which means a holy one. I love the illustration of God calling out to Moses. Moses, Moses. An ancient Near East phrase of tenderness. And when we came to know Jesus, whether that was through a pastor or some youth program or your parents, were a friend, when that happened, when that day happened, when you put your faith in Jesus, God, God called out to you, just like he did to Moses. We've been called. We are now saints. We are on mission for God. And if we were to go up out of the Exodus story in Moses up to 30,000 feet and look across the landscape of the whole Bible, we find ourselves... In a great story of a great deliverance by a great God out of a great love. And when I saw that for the first time, in my heart, I kind of like signed up. Because God had called me. Just as he has called you. The second image that we've talked about was the image of covenant. And in our day, we have no idea what covenant is. Covenant is a sacred commitment. The reason I say we don't know what it is is because we enter into it in marriage so casually. And actually the the root, the foundation of covenant is a very dark, serious, sober ceremony. When God called Abraham, remember how I said Moses was a screw up and Abraham was a screw up who tried to give his wife away twice. So we're doing all right, right? And when Abraham was called by God, there's a ceremony about a covenant. They actually call it cutting a covenant. They would take animals and actually cut them in half. And this is recorded in at the end of Genesis 15. And they would lay out the carcasses of the animals, and then both members of the covenant would walk through the animals, as if to say, may this happen to me, may I be cut apart if I break my covenant with you. But as Moses, as Abraham looked up, he saw a flaming torch walking through the covenant. It was God alone. It's God communicating to us human beings that our ability to walk with him in covenant depends on him, and he will never, ever leave us. He will never fail us. He is in a new covenant. With us. And so that was the second image that we've talked about. We've talked about some big words and made us all a little bit smarter with the big word transcendence. And I love this word. Transcendence is the image that God is big, He's far, He's distant. We cannot reach up and understand Him and touch Him. He controls everything, He's the judge of the world. He's transcendent, he's great, he's majestic. And when we walk under the stars tonight, if you get a chance to do that, to remember that creation is just his artistry. It's just the work of his fingers is what David referred to it as. So he's transcendent, but he's also imminent. And imminent means close and intimate. We showed the image before of Big Daddy, which uh, is this, the name of this sand dune in Africa. And look how... Can you see the people beginning to walk up this sand dune? Now, as you consider that, look at Psalm 139, who was written by who? Who is Psalm 139 written by? David. I said Moses was a screw-up, Abraham was a screw-up, and David as we know, was a screw-up as well. Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. The God who knows everything takes the time to investigate and fully experience our hearts. Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. God knows and understands the motives that are going on. In our brain, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. The new American standard says intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Now, question, do you think our culture, as our culture thinks about God, do they think about God as more imminent or do they think about God as more transcendent? What do you guys think? No one wants to give the wrong answer. Transcendent, Transcendent says some. It's probably a mix. The point is, our culture has missed both, because when they think of God as being transcendent, they are not responding to God in an act of worship and awe like we ought. And when we say that God is imminent, we're just saying that we like some of the things that Jesus has said, while we ignore the rest of what Jesus said. Jesus is the revelation of a transcendent, imminent God who is holy and majestic, but yet draws close to us. It's interesting what Jesus's good friend, John, did when he saw Jesus risen again from the dead, his good friend that he laid next to at the Last Supper in an act of intimate friendship. When he saw the resurrected Jesus, he fell at his feet because Jesus is the perfect expression of both. We've also talked about the giving of law at Mount Sinai. This talk was probably the most talked about talk, at least that I gave in this series. For those of you who were not there, I shared how I learned the Ten Commandments. Not being brought up in a Christian home, it was not at Sunday school, it was not with my mother and father, It was instead at a Mel Brooks movie. Uh, Some buddies and I went to a movie theater in Akron, Ohio, smuggling in beer, thinking that we were so bad. And as we watched the history of the world, which is a satire uh, and very negative toward Christianity, uh, Moses walked out to give, holding three tablets, the 15 commandments and then dropped one says, Oi! I give you the 15 drops, one tablet, it shatters, these 10 commandments. And we thought it was so hilarious. And we drank our beer and then the movie theater was slanted. So then we put the beer bottles down on the ground and they just rolled, rolled, rolled to the bottom of the theater and crashed. And we thought, yeah, we're the masters of our world. So that is how I learned it. And when I became a Christian about a year and a half later, and began to actually read the Bible, I saw a God that is righteously jealous. Now, this was the most difficult and most easily misunderstood talk, because in our world, we think of jealousy, and we think that's a bad thing. It's a negative trait, and, and it is usually. But not when we look at God saying, I want to be first in your life. That is not a selfish thing, but a passionate desire for God to rule over us. For God to sit on the throne of our heart, because when he does that, something beautiful happens. So we looked at the Ten Commandments, and the first four are all about God. Step back and think about this. There's so many candidates for the number one commandment. Why isn't it thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt not commit adultery? Why are the first four commandments all about God? Not because God is petty and needs us, but because God knows when he sits on the throne, when he's number one, something beautiful happens in our hearts. Nietzsche said that there are more idols than there are realities in the world. He was saying we can make anything an idol. John Calvin said that our heart is an idol factory. We've been wired to worship God, but when we don't worship God, we worship something else. Tim Keller made the astute observation that idolatry is not an ancient practice. It's been updated to football stadiums and whatever else it is that we worship. So when we recognize our idols, when we realize I'm living for the approval of other people, or money, power, sex, whatever our idol is, and Jesus stands there as a righteously jealous God saying, you know, if you let me run your life, I'm going to do something awesome. C.S. Lewis said this, the more we get what we Now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over the more truly ourselves we become. As I watch our church journey in faith, there's an issue that some of us are wrestling with right now. There's an issue that some of us are wrestling with that we talked about, and it's an issue of fear because to put your life in the hand of God and say, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to go all in with you, invites us into the next revelation of what God is like. We talked about the goodness and the wildness of God. We talked about God being good, but God is dangerous. Because he wants to be on the throne of our hearts, and because we have other things on the throne of our hearts, God must work in our lives in order to get our hearts back, in order to set us free. So the stage is set for us to face circumstances that are confusing and difficult, and when we are afraid... I don't want anyone to raise their hand, but I wonder how many of us, as we think about acts of obedience or yielding some area of our life, do we not feel some degree of fear? And I gave the story of the boy on the slide when my, little, when my kids were little, and we walked into a park, and we heard a sound, and we didn't know what it was. But I remember my daughter, Kara, looking up at me, and fearing that something bad had happened to someone. A few moments later, we arrived at the park, and a little boy came up to me as my kids went out to play. And a little kid, probably five years old, and he was angry and just wanted to go. And so I was shocked at the posture and the words that a five-year-old boy confronted me with. And so somehow, by God's grace, I knew how I should respond. And I knelt down on one knee and looked at this boy, knowing that he had probably just been hit by his father. And I said, in in my family, we we don't threaten one another. and We don't hit one another. We love each other. That's all I said. And I got back up. And I went over to the slide and the little boy came over to me, put his hand in mine and said, Mr. Would you t- go down the slide with me? And I thought, what an image this is of, of God and us and fear and a broken world and the, the trust in God. My point is God wants to go down the slide of your life with you. Do you know what that slide is? I love the line in the C.S. Lewis book, how cleverly you disguise yourself from that which might save you. And many are the times when the idol in my heart has risen and I've faced difficulty and feared and a God that loves me but is wild has gently said, I want your heart back again. C.S. Lewis, again, so brilliant in his writing, has a discussion where the children in the, land of As, in the land of Narnia are wanting to understand who Aslan, representative of Jesus, is. And they wonder if he is indeed safe. And the quote is this. Safe, said Mrs. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. We talked about the image of the cross and all that we can learn by just looking at the cross and seeing the message that is there. The cross, the bloodied, broken figure of a God that enters into our world of sin, He doesn't sit distant, but he enters into the story. We talked about God being a divine playwright. We talked about, like, if God spoke to you and said, hey, I've written a play, and I'd like you to read it. And you begin to read this story, and you read through the first two episodes, first two acts of the play, and it's like, this is awesome. This is a great play. And then God looks at you, and he says, actually, I'd like you to be in it. I'd like you to be an actor in the great story that I've written. And you're like, wow, that's awesome. And so the big day comes and the play begins. And you're on stage butchering your lines because none of us walk in perfect obedience. And yet as you look out in the audience and you see God, he has this huge smile on his face as you wing it, trying to work your way through your lines. And yet the story somehow isn't affected. And then the third act begins. and Darkness falls on the stage and this ominous mood music begins and you're like, what is going on? And a shady character walks onto the stage and apparently brings evil into the story that God has written. And you're like, what is going on? Which is what our feeling is about the world. God, how can you allow this evil and brokenness? And you're not sure what's going on until the final act when God himself shows up in the story that he has written and dies in the story that he has written and then rises again. What the divine playwright shows us is that God really knows what he's doing and he enters into human suffering. And as I shared before, if we don't understand this as an image of how God runs the world, and I want you to hear me on this, we will mistake God and Satan. As I asked a young lady who was going through difficulty what she thought of God and for her to say, I think he's malicious. I think, how, how can you think of God as being malicious? But it's because she was going through hardship. And as later, God began to move in and bless her life, and I asked her about that, and, and she said, yeah, he's been really, really good to me. So let's go back and talk about that earlier experience and reinterpret it. Many of you were there when we talked through the next image, was, which was the anointing. And uh, so Ryan here, we, uh, I bought a horn an animal horn and filled it with oil and anointed Ryan pouring oil all over his head and face because that is what they did in the Old Testament times to anoint somebody. And the New Testament says that you are anointed and that I am anointed. We're to walk in that image of being anointed by God to be God's representative here on this earth. And as we looked at David's story, sometimes David walked in that powerfully, and sometimes David just forgot. He forgot who he was. He forgot the story that he was in. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus standing before Pilate. Jesus says, I came to testify of the truth, and Pilate responded, what is truth? And we talked about the importance for us as Christ followers to hold the truth well, to hold the truth beautifully, that the gospel would be something very attractive and alluring and that people would be drawn to it through the lives of Christians. And that's why this series is so important, that your view of God be beautiful and that people could see the beauty of God through your life. Then two weeks ago, we talked about the image of God being a fountain. God is not a well that we must somehow fill up by bringing buckets of water and pouring it in, but instead God is a fountain. And if God is a fountain, if he doesn't need us but pours out to us, then we can get down on our knees and drink deeply of the goodness of God. If we don't get this, then it is likely that we will embrace a duty Christianity. And duty kills joy. Zephaniah 317. Don and Steve Reed graciously joined me on stage and we sang an old, old song that had this verse, Zephaniah 317. I'm not going to sing it again. Uh, Sorry, sorry, not without accompaniment. Uh, Don is here, but I, uh, <laughs> the Lord your God is in your midst, the warrior who saves. He will exult over you with joy. He will renew you in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. And this is a God that knows that David and Abraham and Moses and you and I and all of us will fail and stumble and yet still be the called out people of God. God. I was reading the story of Leo uh, Tolstoy, a Russian novelist, and a lot of times we don't know how Jesus has changed people's lives. We're not familiar with the stories. This man, his view of God was very, very negative. And he thought life was just a game, there's no r- meaning to, to life as a result. Nihilism is the feeling that there is no purpose to life. And yet something happened. He met some Christians. And he was attracted to them. And he began to read the New Testament. And as he began to read the New Testament, he experienced this remarkable change that we have talked about week after week here. And I just want to read what Tolstoy said. For 35 years of my life, I was in the proper acceptation of the word a nihilist, not a revolutionary socialist, but a man who believed in nothing. Five years ago, my faith came to me. I believed in the doctrine of Jesus, and my whole life underwent a sudden transformation. Life and death ceased to be evil. Instead of despair, I tasted joy and happiness that death could not take away. And the last image that we've talked about that Jim began with, began discussing last week, is the image of all creation, worshiping Jesus. There's just something that happens when we see who he is, something that's meant to happen in our hearts. That's why we've talked very little about what we are to do. We have just said, here is God. Because we believe if you see him for who he is, then the heart responses, I just want to follow. Philippians 2, verse 8. And I'm just going to read to you two sections of scripture. I'm going to invite the band to come on out, and uh, then we're going to worship. Philippians 2, 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and and might forever and ever. Amen. Would you stand with us as we worship Jesus Christ?